0: I want to start with our memory verse of the month. Uh, memory verse of the month this month is Colossians 2.6, and I have not done this in the service yet, so you might not have known this. But Colossians 2.6 is our memory verse of the month. Will you say that with me? Colossians 2.6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Colossians 2.6. The verse tells us to continue to live our life in Jesus just as we received him as our Lord. And that is vitally important. The gospel is something that is not just a moment in time. It is something that after you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, that should continue to impact you. That should continue to be something that you continue to live your life in him. Just as you receive Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. We're going to be in the book of John, John chapter 3 today, but before I dive into John chapter 3, I wanted to tell you about some physics, and I know that some of you, now your eyes have already glazed over, (laughs) but it's okay. One of the biggest problems, the biggest issues in physics is the search for the grand unifying theory. You see, here's the problem. We have what's called the electromagnetic force. We have the strong force, and we have the weak force. And really, those forces govern everything on the atomic level. So you've got electrons spinning around protons. Protons have a positive charge. Electrons have a negative charge. Positive is attracted to negative, and that is physics. Here's the issue. We know things that happen on the quantum level, micro-microscopic, and we know things that happen on the atomic level, like electrons and protons being attracted to each other. We have what's called the standard model of physics, which explains the quantum level. And the standard model cannot explain why protons are attracted to electrons. We simply don't have a good way of explaining that. There's no grand unifying theory. People are searching for it. They believe the answer lies in the mathematical area called Li groups and Li algebras. But there is no, as of date, grand unifying theory. Well, I want to put all that aside because I want to tell you the ultimate grand unifying theory. The grand unifying theory of the universe is not in the world of physics. It's not in the world of mathematical Lie groups. The grand unifying theory is God's love. God's love answers the deepest questions that we could ever ask far more important than why protons and electrons are attracted to each other. God's love is our grand unifying theory. So we need to understand God's love. What does it mean when we say God loves us? What does that actually mean? How do we make sense of the fact that God loves us? So today, we're going to look at salvation. Because the ultimate expression of God's love is in salvation we're going to look at it as the solution to our biggest problem, as our grand unifying theory being God's love. <clears throat> Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, and read with me John 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at me, saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16, a really well-known verse, well, well-known enough that you'll see it on TV and football stadiums. People will just write John 3.16. But John 3.16 comes, here's the big reveal, after verses 1 through 15. Okay. Verses 1 through 15 set the stage for John 3.16. God's love for the world is set firmly on the foundation of verses 1 through 15. And so we are going to dig into verses 1 through 15. Have you ever had a deep conversation with a true expert? You know, someone who really knows their stuff. Maybe you're talking about cars and so you go and talk to Warren. Or Apple products and you go and talk to Chris. Conversations with a true expert can be very enlightening and that's exactly what's going on here. Nicodemus. Nicodemus. The ultimate expert goes to speak with Jesus. The true expert. And Their conversation gives us some insight into God's plan. Now, in order to understand that, I want you to pay attention to the description of Nicodemus. How is Nicodemus described there in verse 1? A man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, a Pharisee. So we need to understand all of those things. First of all, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the conservatives, the strict adherents to the Bible, the people who kept the traditions. The Pharisees were sort of the popular people. They were the people's people. They took people back to their roots, back to the basics. They weren't necessarily... Um, how do I want to say this? They weren't necessarily the rich and powerful. They weren't necessarily the politically affluent. They were really the strict adherents to the law and some of them josephus tells us some of them happened to be aristocrats but not very many for the most part the pharisees were the people's people but nicodemus was special he was a member of the jewish ruling council the sanhedrin nicodemus was not just a pharisee he was a pharisee with power he was a pharisee with authority he was not just educated in the jewish law he held position of influence on the sanhedrin actually the name nicodemus is itself an interesting name see from roughly like 150 bc to 330 a.d the name nicodemus is used of four people in historical records only four people carried this name nicodemus who were jews there were lots of greeks named nicodemus but only four jews had this name all four of them were rich powerful politically significant individuals. It appears, looking at the historical record, that the name Nicodemus was a family name for one particular family that had lots of influence, and they would name the oldest son Nicodemus to carry on the name. When John tells us there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, John is telling us this was the pinnacle of human achievement. This man, Nicodemus, was the brightest of the bright. He was the ideal representative for the Jews. And the ideal representative for the Jews is in a meeting with God's representative. This is a deep conversation. The Jew par excellence is with... God himself, to discuss the ways of the world, the ways of life. If you ever want to see a grand unifying theory, we've just put the two top scholars in the room together and we get to watch their conversation. He came to Jesus at night and he begins with the title, Rabbi. Nicodemus, the powerful elite scholar, begins with the title of respect for Jesus, rabbi, teacher. He says, rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. That's a perfect, grammatically, a perfect who has come. It means that he recognized that he came from God and was carrying some authority of God because Nicodemus isn't so sure about this message of Jesus. Let's hear what Jesus says. So I start with verses 3 through 4. And the point that I think I see in verses 3, second chance. Nicodemus says, no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replies, very truly. A response to Nicodemus' statement. You must be someone special, Jesus, because you're doing lots of really special things. And Jesus responds to him and says, "Bible, Nicodemus has just been told, "You're not eligible. You don't meet the standards, buddy. You need a second chance, chance, if you're ever to accomplish anything here. Why do we need a second chance?" Because we're all born sinners. There's actually um, what I would call a double entendre here or a double meaning in the word. Uh, the word for again also means from above. So different translations of John 3.3 3 will say different things. Uh, some say no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Other versions will actually say no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born from above. John does this all the time in his quotations of Jesus where he actually keys in on a keyword that Jesus uses and says it actually means both. And John, John sort of alludes to that here. And I think that's what's going on. Really, we could probably translate this as no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again from above, to use both meanings of the word. The idea here is we need a second chance. We don't have the right start. We were born as sinners. The moment we're born... We are guilty of sin. So we need the second chance. Almost a year ago, uh, my brother and I were moving an airplane from Texas up to Lincoln. And my brother flies for the airlines. He had not flown in a small airplane in probably eight years. And I had flown a little bit, but I was pretty rusty. And so it was an adventure of a flight because... We both were a little bit unfamiliar with this airplane. And we got a later start than we wanted. The guy that we were getting the airplane from wanted to take us out to lunch. And lunch turned into showing us all of his house and his airplanes. And it it wound up that we didn't get off the ground until about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And so, you know, small airplane, Texas to Lincoln. It's going to take us about eight hours. And we realized this is going to be a late night. We were... uh, somewhere over the middle of Oklahoma, and a storm blew in, and uh, my brother, we're watching, he says, turn on the landing light for just a second, you know, we're up at altitude, so I turn on the landing light, sure enough, there's snow just sweeping over the wing, we thought, okay, this is not, like, it's an unfamiliar airplane, it's dark, there's snow falling, wisdom says that we should probably call it a night and get on the ground, And so uh, I began turning for the airport. My brother called air traffic control, told him what we were doing. The wind really picked up and it was really blowing us. And we were landing in an airport that neither of us had ever been in a state that really neither of us had ever flown in, in an airplane that we had flown in for a total of two hours (laughs) at night. And uh, as I turned to line up for my landing, I was too high, I was too fast, and the wind was blowing really hard. And I came in and I, I went to land this airplane and I got down about five feet above the ground and the wheel skipped and my brother said, go around. So I went full throttle and, and flew off. And my brother looked at me and said, I am so sorry. Nothing was right about that landing. We were too high, we were too fast. The wind was blowing in the wrong direction. I should have told you to go around 500 feet earlier. I apologize. I said, no, it's all right. We, we got lined up and we made the landing. We needed a second chance. Our whole setup was wrong. We started off in a bad position, and there's no recovering from that sort of a start. We needed a second chance. That's the life that we have today. We're born sinners. We are born sinners. All of you sin, but I want you to realize you're born as a sinner. Your whole startup is wrong. We need a second chance. And that's exactly what Jesus highlights in John 3. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Unless they get the second chance. Unless they start over. We're going to sing the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And verse 1 concludes with the phrase that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. The word wretch means base, despicable, vile. That's what we were born as. I think I've told you before, um, one of the things that I did when my brother had his baby is uh, I picked up the baby and I said, oh, you're a cute little sinner. That's what we (laughs) are. <laughs> Nicodemus comes up with a problem. You see, the problem with being born again is it doesn't make sense to us. And Nicodemus identifies that. He says, how can someone be born again? This makes no sense. You don't get a second chance at life. On video games, yes, you get a second chance, right? You can always hit the reset button. At life, You don't get a second chance. And Nicodemus is bringing up this issue. How can this possibly be? And so he goes to the most extreme case. He says, can someone really enter the second time into their mother's womb to be born again? Jesus, you said I need to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. I'd like to enter the kingdom of God. This makes no sense to me. How is this even possible? That's what Jesus is going to explain is how this does make sense in God's love, the grand unifying theory of God's love. So let me start with an action step here at this point. I want you to evaluate yourself. Have you chosen to go around and do this thing called life the right way? Or are you still trying to land the airplane from the unstable approach? Have you chosen your second chance? Or are you still trying with your baggage of sin to put this thing down in an impossible circumstance? If you've never accepted Jesus as your savior, you are trying to land the airplane from an impossible situation. Step one is to accept that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that that is sufficient payment for your sins. Jesus goes on in verses 5 through 8. He actually explains that more than a second chance is necessary. You get a second chance through Jesus, but in reality, we need more than just a second chance. Remember, Nicodemus asked this question, how can this be? This doesn't make sense. And Jesus doesn't even answer Nicodemus' question directly. Instead, he goes into more detail. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. The picture here of water is of repentance. The picture of the Spirit is God's very Spirit indwelling. The idea here is that more than a second chance, we need a right start. We need to repent from our sins. That's the idea of water. Remember, John the Baptist, baptized, immersed in water as a symbol of repentance. Jesus says, you need to be born of water, repentance, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwelling. He's going to explain how that happens here in a minute. But the idea here is that we need the right start. Jesus responds by painting a picture. And that picture is of being born through repentance, repenting of sin, and the Spirit of God indwelling and regenerating. An individual who wants to have a right start must both recognize that they're a sinner and repent and have the Holy Spirit work within their heart to bring them to saving faith in Jesus. Jesus uses these phrases very, very carefully. It says, flesh gives birth to flesh. If you re-entered your mother's womb, impossibility. But if you re-entered your mother's womb and were born again of your mother, you would still have the same sin nature that you had to start with. It would be a second chance, yes, but it would still be from the wrong start. That would be, doing everything the same and hoping for a different outcome. We call that crazy. No, Jesus goes on. The Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You want renewal? It has to come from the Spirit of God. And guess what? The need to be born again is absolute and universally binding. It is something that we all need. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. There's a play on words here in the Greek, because the word for wind and Spirit are the same word. The idea here is Jesus saying you shouldn't be surprised because you would recognize theologically you're a sinner and the Holy God can't look on sin. It must be the work of God. And that's what verse 8 is all about. It has to be God working in your heart to turn you to him. Simply recognizing that you're a sinner is not enough. You must turn to God and ask for his cleansing work in your life. Verse 2 of how deep the Father's love for us has this phrase. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. The picture painted by these words is not just mere forgiveness. No, it is the new life that comes in Christ. The wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory, not just bringing sons to forgiveness of sins, but bringing sons into a life walked with Jesus as the Spirit leads. The Holy Spirit guarantees that will be brought to glory. Jesus here is emphasizing that it cannot be a work of any individual to come to Christ. It must be of the work of the Holy Spirit within their life. Repent from sins. Turn to Jesus and ask him for forgiveness. It must be his work in our life. So I want you as an action step to praise God. For the fact that he has given you more than just a mere second chance. Remember, a second chance isn't actually enough. You need a right start. Praise God that he's given you more than just that second chance, but he's given you a right start. Because what we really need is a divine solution to our problem. Our problem of sin requires we have a second chance. But just a second chance is enough we need the right second chance and that comes from a divine solution to our sin problem in verse nine nicodemus again asks how can this be jesus this isn't making sense to me remember who we've got here we have the pinnacle of achievement in nicodemus And Jesus has just blown his knowledge, his training, his academics out of the water. And he says, I'm not following Jesus. You're going to have to explain this to me. Jesus gets on him pretty hard. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things? You've been doing this for how long, Nicodemus, and you're not making sense of this? Very truly, I tell you. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. Now, here's a question for you. Who's with Jesus here? Up to this point, all we know is that it is Jesus and Nicodemus away at night, and now Jesus starts using the word we. The only answer I can come up with is that Jesus is speaking trinitarily. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit speak of what they know, because they reside in heaven. They testify to what they have seen, and people don't understand. People reject the word of God. Jesus goes on, I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you don't don't get those. You don't believe. How will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? Jesus is really getting on Nicodemus here. Say, saying, Nicodemus, you're so focused on the physical, that you're missing the spiritual. You're missing the real reason I came. You're missing the fact that our need to be born again is something that we cannot do for ourselves. You're so focused on the physical. You're so focused on earning your way into the kingdom of God that you've completely missed the reality, which is you can't do it yourself. You can't do it yourself. It requires a divine act. And Jesus, as God, is the only one who can solve our problem. In verse 11, Jesus uses this phrase very truly. That's how our NIV translates it. In the Greek, it's amen, amen. The word amen is a word that you would be used in court to give your uh, affirmation of something. Something is said and you agree with it, you'd say amen. I agree with what has just been said. Never does somebody say amen, amen. You don't say it back to back, and Jesus does regularly in the book of John. And never do you get to say it about your own words. That, that's not, you just don't do that. So not only does Jesus do that, but he does it twice here. It is equivalent to saying, thus saith the Lord. These are divine words that I am giving you, Nicodemus. I tell you, we, the Trinity, God, speak of what we know. Nicodemus, you have no idea what heaven is. You have no idea of what the spiritual realm entails. Nicodemus, you need to understand that Jesus is God and is the solution to the problem. But Jesus is also a wise teacher and understands the need for examples. And so he gives what I think is the most beautiful example I love this part of the story. In verse 14, Jesus shows that the Old Testament actually previewed all that Jesus was going to do. Look at verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life. To understand the significance of this story, we have to go back to Numbers chapter 21. In Numbers chapter 21, the Israelites did what the Israelites do and started complaining. They start complaining, and so God sends snakes into the camp. I hate snakes. God sends snakes into the camp. The snakes begin biting people. People begin dying. The Israelites wake up and realize... We must be doing something wrong. God has sent snakes. Moses, through God, provides a solution. Moses takes a bronze snake, puts it on a pole, and sticks it in the dirt. And says, if you get bit by a snake, all you need to do is look up at that pole, and you'll be healed. Simple. Easy. Right? Now, think about what people could do. If you got bit by a snake, here are some options. You could look at the pole and live. You could try to solve the problem yourself and die. Two options. I don't know for sure, but I could just about guarantee there were people who chose not to look at the pole. I, I can actually envision Some of these people that, like, close their eyes and refuse to look up. Because that's how stubborn we are. The answer was simple. Look at the pole. Believe that that is what God has given you to heal you. And you'll live. Real simple. And Jesus uses this example to Nicodemus. He says, look, Nicodemus. There was a time in our history where life was given to those who trusted God and his method. Did it make sense? Is there a medical explanation for how looking upon a bronze serpent removes the poison and provides healing? No. I can't think of one. If you come up with one, let me know. I'd be interested. I don't see a medical explanation. It doesn't make sense, Nicodemus. Just then, it didn't make sense, but you believe that it happened. So why is it so hard for you to believe that you must be born again? How deep the Father's love has these words. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Behold the man upon the cross. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, the answer is going to be simple. Those who look on the man upon the cross and put their complete trust in his death on the cross will be saved, will inherit eternal life. And then verse 16. So I want you to take a minute before we go to verse 16. I want you to take a minute and reflect upon the cross. Look and live. Just as Moses erected the serpent in the wilderness, so we are called to look on Jesus, placing our complete faith and trust in his death on the cross for our sins, and live and have eternal life life. So that's the context. That's the context of John 3:16. So let's now look at John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loves you so much that he gives you something better than a second chance. A sure thing. We need a second chance. We are born sinners. But we need more than a second chance. We need the right chance. And God gives us exactly that. And that is the ultimate display of God's love. For God so loved the world. This is the only place, by the way, in the New Testament where it talks about God loving the world. God loves the world. How do we know he loves the world? Because he gave his one and only son. What is God's love? God's love is his giving of his son. What do you consider evidence of love? Flowers on Valentine's Day, maybe. Chocolate, a nice date night. Maybe the ability to do whatever you want one night. Those aren't evidence of love not God's love. God's love is evidence in that he gave his son. Look at the object of God's love, the world. Nowhere else in the New Testament is God explicitly said to love the world. By the way, this has huge impacts when you hear people say, well, God is love. God is loving. Yes, God is love. And what what does it mean that God is love? It means he gave his son. It doesn't mean he lets you do whatever you want. That's not love. It doesn't mean that he forces you to do something. No, God's love for the world is his only son. The extent of God's love. How far was he willing to go? To give his one and only son. The Greek word monogene, one and only, some people have translated it as only begotten. It actually doesn't carry the idea of birth at all. It really carries the idea of uniqueness. Uh, this is really a statement that God gave Himself. The Son of God, God Himself. God gave that which is most special. And what is most special to God is. God, because he is God. God gave that. The extent of his love was not to give something that was merely created. It was to give himself. The effectiveness of God's love was eternal life. Ultimately, what we need to know is that God gave Jesus his one and only son, his unique son himself, that we might have eternal life. In How Deep the Father's Love, it says, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. The meeting between Nicodemus and Jesus. The conversation of the millennium between the ideal representative of man and God himself is summarized in these words. For God so loved the world That he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. My challenge to you this week choose to boast in nothing but Jesus Christ. I am quite confident that at some point, sometime this week, you're going to say something about something you accomplished something you did, something that happened to you. When you get there, I want you to pause and ask, how can I boast in Jesus right now? That's my action step. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Let's boast in that today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that you gave us Jesus. You're only, you're unique, yourself. To die on the cross, to pay the price of our sins, I thank you for your love, which unifies together things that don't make sense. We must be born again seems impossible but your love made a way the holy god separate from sin and the wretch that i am is only unified by your love and so i pray that this week we would boast in you that we would boast in your love how should we gain from your reward It is only by your love. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.